Colossians chapter 1, verse 13. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Let's pray. God, you've done it. You've delivered us. And so here, this season of Lent, leading up to Easter, we're traveling with Jesus the road to the cross. We're praying that you would renew us in our walk with Jesus. And so our prayer this morning is, deliver us. Deliver us. We look back at how you have delivered us and we celebrate, we remember the deliverance. Speak this word deep into our hearts so that we leave as changed people this morning. In your name we pray, amen. We are looking at <clears throat> seven prayers in this season. We started uh, last week, and it's gonna take us all the way through Easter Sunday. We will make the prayer, resurrect us. This morning, we're looking at this short prayer, deliver us, deliver us. Uh, God is, is, has done a good work in my heart as I've thought about and prayed and studied for this prayer this week. Deliver us. What does it mean that we pray for God to deliver us? What does it mean that God does deliver us? What does it mean that we celebrate God as the deliverer? What are we praying for? What are we asking for deliverance from? How are we delivered? Where are we delivered to? This whole idea of deliverance is patterned after the Old Testament story of the Exodus. And that's where God's people learned who he was as deliverer or as redeemer. They saw his character in action. They told stories for the rest of their existence as a people group about the Exodus. And do you know that when they celebrate the Passover, they use the personal uh, plural pronouns. They don't say, our ancestors were delivered. They say, you delivered us out of Egypt. That's how they celebrate. They, they see that story as their own story. And so what we're gonna do this morning is we're gonna look at the pattern of the Exodus and see what we can learn about what we're delivered from, how we're delivered, and where we're delivered to. That's gonna be kind of the roadmap for where we're going this morning. So first, what are we delivered from? See, the Exodus is the pattern for deliverance. What is happening in the Exodus? God's people are enslaved in Egypt. Exodus opens up with some language that brings us back Bible nerddom for a minute, okay? Let's Bible nerd for just a second. Exodus opens up, and <clears throat> if you remember how Genesis ends, Joseph, through the evil that his brothers intended, ends up in Egypt. They had sold, they, they wanted to kill him, and they said, no, let's just sell him into slavery, and we'll tell dad he died, because they hated him so much. So they sell him, he ends up in Egypt, all these awful things happen to him, he ends up in jail, but through God's spirit on him, he, he correctly interprets some dreams in a sense that Pharaoh recognizes, hey, this, this man could be a value for the kingdom, elevates him to where he's second in command over all Egypt next to Pharaoh himself. And then a famine hits. And who do you know comes knocking for help? And it's Joseph's brothers. And they don't recognize him. And it's this incredible story of, of forgiveness. And he says, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. And so they end up in Egypt. Turn the page, Exodus 1. 400 years pass. And there's this little bit that says God's people were fruitful and they multiplied into a great number. Now, we've heard that before in Genesis 1. That's the calling God gave to Adam and Eve. Be fruitful and multiply. In other words, you bear my image as people that know me and love me and worship me. Fill the earth with people who do that. And then we read in Exodus 1, they were fruitful. They multiplied. But they did it 
under a foreign power, such that when they multiplied, when their number grew, and there were more and more and more Israelites, Hebrews, God's people, the foreign ruler that they were under, Pharaoh, became very insecure, very fearful. So he enslaved them and oppressed them. And then Exodus 2 tells us God heard their cry and he knew. Say, so he knew what? He knew who they were. He knew their situation. He knew the covenant he'd made with them. And so he comes down to deliver them out of slavery. That's what the deliverance is from. So what is it that we need to be delivered from? Exodus shows us a lot about the domain of darkness that Colossians 1 talks about. It's evil and it's wicked. It's godless. It's oppressive. It's a culture of death. The Bible actually takes this idea of slavery and it describes the human condition using that word. Now, if you read the Bible, you'll see a lot of different images uh, and, and word pictures that it uses to describe the human condition. You'll read of, uh, of an exile longing for home. You might read about sin or transgression as it talks about our, our moral failures. You might read about sin talked about with the image of, of unfaithfulness in marriage. <clears throat> in this case, we're gonna read about sin being captivity or slavery. See, the reality that the Bible sets forth for all human beings is that we are held captive. We are enslaved. This is the words of Jesus in John 8, 34. Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Or in Romans 6, Paul, <clears throat> what then? Are we to sin because we're not under the law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you're the slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin which leads to death or of obedience which leads to righteousness. And he goes on in verses 17 to 23 to use the, the word slaves over and over. Because the human condition that the Bible wants us to understand is that we are held captive. We go read the story of the Exodus about a very physical captivity with physical oppression, physical threats, physical persecution. And then we jump ahead to the New Testament. It says, just like that, we're actually held captive by our sin. We're held captive by the reality and the states of our hearts. What is it that we're enslaved to? Well, we could throw the blanket term sin out. But I'd like to expound on that for just a minute. What is it that we're enslaved to? Well, we were all created in God's image with a God-sized hole in our hearts that we're constantly trying to fill. So what I'd like to propose is that we're all enslaved to try to find life, but to try to find life apart from God. That's what sin has done to us. It didn't take away the longings. Herman Bavinck was a theologian in the late 1800s, early 1900s. He was Dutch, he was awesome. Go Herman Bavinck. He describes sin like this, that sin actually takes the good way God made us and it, it doesn't destroy that, but it actually bends it in another direction. So, so the longings that God created you with are good. The longing for life. Uh, Tim Keller wrote a book called Making Sense of God, and he describes some of these basic desires of all people. And he has his chapters kind of outlined based on these things. He talks about meaning and satisfaction and freedom, self and identity, hope, morals, justice. We all want these things. 
And we're actually enslaved to try to find them, but because of sin, we're trying to find them apart from God. So sin doesn't remove our desire for life. It just bends the direction of where we try to find it away from God. So that we're trying to find things that can give us life, trying to find things that can give us meaning, trying to find things that can give us identity, trying to find things that can give us freedom without making us the oppressors of the people we got freedom from, trying to find meaning that suffering actually can't take away from us. We're trying to find hope that can be solid no matter what our circumstances are. We're trying to find morals. We're trying to find justice, but then our society also claims we don't want any uh, moral norms, but then we want justice, and we're quickly finding there, there's no justice without moral norms. So we're looking for these things. Where are we finding it? And the answer is that we keep looking and keep looking and keep looking, and we keep plumbing the depths of the hole in our heart that turns out to be God-sized, and we realize nothing satisfies it, but it doesn't take away the longing. I was listening to a podcast this week with two comedians. I like comedy. I like stand-up comedy, okay? I think they're brilliant um, in the way that they communicate. So I'm listening to a podcast with Burt Kreischer and Louis C.K. God forgive me. I repent. I'm sorry. Two bears, one cave, okay? And <clears throat> it was a fascinating conversation because Burt, who is um, a fantastic sinner, I think he would say that, like very openly life without God. But I actually asked Louis at one point, he says, hey, if, you, if, you, if they came out with this idea that you could pay to have a surgery and they could put this thing in your head that would make you religious, would you do it? And Louis's like, no, no way. I wouldn't do that at all. No, I like, you know, one life is all you got. When you're done, it's over. And Bert, I actually find to be probably more honest than Louis because Bert says, I'd do it in a heartbeat. He says, I'd love to be religious. To have some sort of hope that there's something beyond death. You mean all the stuff I'm living for now just ends when I die? All the people I love, all the stuff I'm doing, all the things I'm investing in, all the people I'm making laugh, it just is over? He says, that, that terrifies me. If I could get a surgery like that, I would do it in a heartbeat. I find that to be very intellectually honest. Because what he's saying is, I've been created with these desires and part of my desire for meaning and for purpose is that it lasts beyond this life. The truth about what we're enslaved to is that we're enslaved to living by our own selves, finding our own way to cope with this life and to find what we're really looking for. But the Christian story of everything that's found in the Bible says that the world is the way it is and that you are the way you are because we're enslaved, held captive, to try to satisfy our longing for God in things that are not God. It's like drinking salt water, okay? You ever drank salt water on accident? Maybe on purpose. Maybe you're a kid you didn't know. But you might see salt water, and if you're dying of thirst, or maybe you read the book, The Life of Pi, and he's floating on this, like, raft, if you could call it that, <clears throat> and he's dying of thirst. And I remember reading that book in school thinking, that's just so cruel because you're surrounded by water. And you see salt water, and it looks like water. It moves like water. It might even go down like water, though it doesn't taste perfectly like fresh water. But actually, the water is so salty that your body needs to release more fluid than it takes in in order to process all the salt in the water. 
Okay, so do you track with what's happening here? If you drink salt water, you have to release more water than you just took in. So it's actually making you dehydrated faster if you drink salt water than if you were to drink nothing at all. The Ocean Service, uh, part of our government's website, actually has a warning that seawater, because it contains salt, and humans drink it, their cells are, are taking in water and salt, and we, our bodies are meant to take in some salt, but when we take in that much, it's actually really dangerous. Eventually, this is the last line, eventually you will die of dehydration even as you become thirstier. Uh, it, it, isn't that amazing? When I think about that drinking salt water, I'm thinking that is exactly like what we do. We look around at our world and we're thirsty. There's no doubt that we're all thirsty. We can't get rid of that longing. We'll all admit that, Christian and non-Christian alike. But living in this world and trying to satisfy that thirst with everything that's not God is like drinking salt water. It's readily available, it looks like water, it goes down like water, but it's actually killing us. We're becoming more dehydrated and thirstier at the same time and we're trapped in a cycle. The cycle goes like this, you're convinced that you have what you need to satisfy your own longings. So we latch onto these things. We think that they're gonna meet our needs. And then these God replacements actually only let us down. They leave us empty and the longing remains but it actually gets more intense because it was never satisfied in the first place. And we feel worse off than before, but we're still convinced that we, uh, that we know what we need, and so we double down our efforts and we try harder to satisfy these captive longings, and the cycle continues. This is much like the cycle of God's people enslaved in Egypt. They were oppressed in harsh slavery. Moses shows up on the scene and says, God has sent me to redeem you. They say, wonderful, go do that. <laughs> Moses goes and in his offer of hope for freedom, he has to confront Pharaoh. He says, it's time that you let my people go. Pharaoh responds, not politely, not kindly, not giving them a few days off. He responds with quite the opposite. Uh, Moses' efforts for freedom were met with increased cruelty from Pharaoh and their slavery only got worse. Their burdens only got heavier. Their task to make bricks and build things only got harder. That's exactly what sin is. It's being convinced and determined to find life on our own without God. The essence of sin is life without God and scripture says we are enslaved by it. We're captivated by it. Sin is slavery because we can't shake those deep human desires and we can't break the cycle of thinking that we can satisfy those desires on our own. So, what does your captivity look like? What does captivity to those desires and longings look like for you? Even if you have tasted and seen and known Jesus, we still, just like uh, the Israelites who were saved out of Egypt, you get delivered and then you start complaining and say, we had things better in Egypt. Hey, we do that. God delivers us and we still look back and say, things were a little bit better there. We've built up these habits of how to live under slavery. And I know it was slavery and it was harsh, but they say, gosh, we had food to eat. We could sit around the fire. We could make some bread. We could, we could eat some food. At least we knew what we were going to eat tomorrow. What does our captivity look like? See, sin acts like an addiction. 
We are sin addicts. We cannot get enough of trying to figure out our life apart from God. So how is it that you cope with your life apart from God? What are your coping mechanisms for life? How have you learned to get by? How have you learned to handle the stress and anxiety that life throws at you apart from God? Where are you looking for deep satisfaction? What are you trusting to give meaning to your life? So this is the first thing. We look and we say, what are we delivered from? It's captivity to these deep human longings that God put there, but sin has bent away from God, and we've been drinking salt water, thinking it's going to satisfy our thirst. So how are we delivered? How can we be delivered from this? Well, first, to deliver Israel out of Egypt this is such a simple, I mean, this, this, you, you blow right past this point. And I'll admit, this hit me like at the very end of, of preparing this and studying this text. But the most obvious thing that had to happen for God to deliver his people out of Egypt is that he had to show up in Egypt. Hey, can you, sometimes I wish I was preaching at like Charlie Dates' church, the Progressive Baptist Church in Chicago, because they would have all shouted Hey, for God to save his people out of Egypt, he had to show up in Egypt. Come on. (laughs) Do you understand how, like, obvious that is, but how quickly we just read right past that? He had to go meet them in their slavery. And not only that, the one who led them out of slavery, he wasn't even just in slavery. Moses was exiled from the people who were, he was like two steps removed from where God had to go meet them. He had to show up in a burning bush as he was exiled out of the place of where the people lived who were in slavery. But for God to bring them and usher them into freedom, he had to show up in the place where they were oppressed and enslaved. How many of you think, if I'm gonna meet God, I have to get out of this place first? I can only meet God when I'm out of this slavery. I can only meet God after I've fixed this oppression. I can only meet God after I've figured out how to break the shackles of this captivity. And then I can get into a place where I'm a little more free, my life's a little more cleaned up, and then God will meet me there. The biblical pattern of where God meets you is he shows up in Egypt. Exodus 2 tells us that God sees and knows and has compassion on his people in their slavery. That's good news. Jesus shows up right in the middle of your captivity. But when he shows up, it's important for us to realize there's a difference between deliverance and redemption. Our prayer is deliver us, but I'll admit, I think deliverance sometimes can be a weak word for what happens. Because Jesus didn't merely rescue us from under the noses of someone bigger and smarter and stronger than him. Right? You think about a movie of someone escaping out of a prison and you're like, they don't have any authority to be taking these people out. It's more of like an escape plan. Hey, that's not the way Jesus delivers. Jesus delivers us in a way that let him walk straight in the front door and straight out the front door. Jesus delivered us in a way with, that he had all authority and he actually demanded our rightful release. We weren't snuck out the back. Jesus didn't dig a tunnel Jesus walked right in, showed that he had authority over the ones holding us captive, and then walked right out. God shows up in Egypt, shows that he has authority over Pharaoh, and leads the people out. 
when Jesus delivers us, he delivers us in a way that we rightfully are released. How? The difference is a price is paid. Jesus pays the price for our deliverance. This doesn't mean he pays someone off. It means that our deliverance is costly because deliverance is brutal. You see, what happened when the people were delivered, the climactic moment of deliverance is Exodus 14, when the people walk through the Red Sea and walk out the other side. They come to this place and they go, there is no way. The army is cut. There is death behind and death in front. Where are we going to go? And that's when they turn to Moses and say, you brought us out here to kill us, didn't you? But actually, God has a miracle waiting, and he splits the sea, and they walk right through it, get to the other side. And what do they do in Exodus 15? They sing a song of worship. How do they describe God in the song of worship? A mighty warrior. A mighty warrior who has thrown horse and rider into the sea. And we say, that's kind of grotesque. God's going to take life. God's going to be so big and strong. I thought God was a loving God and a gentle God. But some of you know what it means to be in slavery and captivity. And some of you know there is no gentle way out. Some of you know what it means to be in the death grip of slavery to addiction, and you know there is no easy and gentle way out. Some of you know that the only way to be delivered is through a brutal process. Some of you know the grips of addiction. Some of you know the cycle of relationships that you thought would bring you satisfaction, that there's no easy and gentle and kind exit ramp to that. Some of you know the grip of pornography. You know the feeling that you cannot fix yourself. And who do you need in that moment? But the mighty warrior God to show up and mightily, powerfully set you free. Some of you know what it is to be desperate for God's strength. Because deliverance is, is costly. It's brutal. It's a battle for your freedom. Deliverance is a death. And the good news is that Jesus paid the price of death so that you could be delivered. Hebrews 2, 14 and 15 says, It was by his death that he would destroy him who holds the power of death. That is the devil, and so set his captives free. In the resurrection, this is from Herman Bobbick again. In the resurrection of Christ, it was proved that there was a man who could not be contained by death, who could not be ruled by Satan, by the power of corruption, who was stronger than the grave and death and hell. Charlie Dates summed it up like this. If you're looking for good preaching, go just YouTube Charlie Dates and just hit play and keep going. Charlie Dates sums it up like this, that Jesus saves us from sin's penalty and power and presence. Jesus saves us from sin's penalty because the penalty was death and separation from God forever. But Jesus delivers us from this penalty by taking it on for us. You are no longer guilty. You are no longer condemned. Some of you needed to hear that this morning. You are not condemned if you are in Christ because Christ has paid the penalty for you. But we're also freed from sin's power. Jesus has freed you from the powerful powerful hold on you that sin had. You are no longer enslaved to the cycle of living by your own power. 
You're no longer enslaved to trying to drink salt water. Do you know why? Because Jesus said, I will make a well of living water spring up from inside of you. The Holy Spirit. And he lets you drink freely and forever from the fountain of God's very presence. So that the deepest longings of your heart are satisfied in him. And one day Jesus will free us from the presence of sin because he has promised to return and make all things new so that sin itself is no more. So we've seen what we're delivered from, this captivity, this slavery. We've seen how we're delivered. It's brutal. But we need it to be brutal because captivity has got a strong grip on us. But this story continues on. Colossians 1.13 says he's delivered us from the domain of darkness, transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. The, the story of the Exodus doesn't end in, in chapter 15. There's a whole lot more story before they get to the promised land. It was promised to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. I'm taking you to the promised land. But if you read Exodus and then Leviticus and then Numbers and then Deuteronomy, you won't get to the promised land. Because when God's people cried for deliverance, he took them to the wilderness. He took them to the place of waiting and wandering. God's people cried for deliverance from Egypt, and then they cried for deliverance from the wilderness. They wanted to be delivered from the very place God took them. See, God's answer to our cry for deliverance is often to bring us to a season of waiting in the wilderness. You say, why? Why doesn't he go straight to promised land? The wilderness was the place God shaped his people to be worshipers of him. So when you read Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, and you're reading all these laws, understand this. The law of God is two things, love God and love others. What he is shaping them to be is lovers of him supremely and lovers of others selflessly. He's shaping them to be worshipers. God doesn't shape them to be worshipers in Egypt, and he doesn't shape them to be worshipers in the promised land. He shapes them in the wilderness. So when you get out of Egypt and you begin to read in Exodus, about the tabernacle, and about the priests, and about the anointing oil, and about how you would consecrate the priests, and about how people were to offer sacrifices. And you get to the place in Leviticus, and you go, oh boy, this is where my Bible reading plan goes to die. You need to understand Bible nerddom. Do you know how Exodus ends? The tabernacle, some of y'all are smiling because you know, the tabernacle's built, God's presence descends, they're all looking at it, wondering who can go inside. Who can go in? God's here. He's among us. Who can withstand his presence? Who can walk into that holy of holies? And you're left on a cliffhanger, waiting for Netflix to release the next season. But thankfully, we're watching a show that already came out. So you flip the page in Leviticus, and Leviticus tells you the story of who can go in. Who can go into God's presence? Well, a priest whose sins have been atoned for. A priest who has the rightful place in God's presence. That's a priest like Jesus. But you know, God's people only learn these things in the wilderness. In the wilderness is where God shapes his people to worship him. The seasons of waiting in the wilderness is where we learn to worship God as we wander through this life. 
The wilderness does not mean you've been left by God. As you read the stories in the Torah, in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, you will see that people doubt God over and test God over and over. But God brought them out of Egypt to the place where God was actually dwelling among them. He was with them. Moses said that. In Exodus 33 and 34, he comes down from the mountain after being, they couldn't wait 40 days, and they've turned away from God and began to worship a golden calf that Aaron built for him. Moses comes down and breaks the, the stone tablets that God had written the law on, and Moses is furious, so he makes him grind up the golden calf, pour it in water, and drink it. Why? Biblical theme. You become like what you worship. You become like what you worship. And the prophets, you'll see them say, they have eyes and they don't see, they have ears and they don't hear. You're becoming like them because you have eyes and don't see, you have ears and don't hear. Hey, this all started with the golden calf. You want to be- worship that golden calf? You'll become like him. How about you ingest the gold you built him with? So Moses is frustrated. He's mad. And God says, fine, Moses, I'll wipe him out. Moses is like, no, 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 no. That's not a good look for you. If you bring him out in the desert and kill your people, these people bear your name. It's actually better for you to restore and redeem them. Moses prays and he says, God, if you're not going to go with us, do not take us from here. And he says, I need to see your glory. Why is the wilderness the place that God shapes his people into worship? Because it's in the wilderness that your heart is exposed and God's character is exposed. In the wilderness, you're stripped of comforts. You're stripped of a map. You're stripped of your map of ways that you've learned to cope with life and you've learned to get by, and none of that works anymore. And so your heart's exposed. Your longings are laid bare before God and others where you say, I want this to be quick and easy. And God says, ah, we're dealing with the real you now. Because that's what God wants from you, to deal with the real you, not the one you pretend to be. But it's also in the wilderness that God's character is exposed in Exodus 34 we have the most repeated verse in the entire Old Testament, Exodus 34, 6, and 7. When God's glory passes by Moses, and Moses sees the very back end of it, he says, we have these words, the Lord, the Lord, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. In the wilderness, God shows you who you are, and he shows you who he is, and he shapes you into a worshiper. But it's important that we embrace that season of waiting and wandering in the wilderness. Don't despair of the wilderness. Find peace in God's presence in the wilderness. Take in the revelation of who God shows you to be in the wilderness. Enjoy the fact that God is there with you in the wilderness. So when you think that you're wandering through life right now in this season. You don't have a map. You're not sure where you're going. You know you're not in the promised land, but you also look back and you recognize you've been delivered. And you're in a season of waiting, in a season of wandering. You're in a season of discomfort and pain. Many of you might be in seasons of sorrow and lament and grief. God has brought you there to shape you and form you. God is with you there in that wilderness. So when we cry, deliver us, we see these two great sides of the power of his deliverance. 
from our brutal captivity. But then we also see where he takes us is not necessarily where we thought he would, where we hoped he would. Because this deliverance doesn't immediately go. We're about to sing a song called Egypt, and it talks at one point about you brought us out of Egypt into the promised land. Well, that into, that was a long into. That was a 40-year into the promised land. And some of you might be going, yeah, I have good news for you. Our Christian lives, I believe, are actually more wilderness than they are promised land. I think promised land is more of a picture of God's presence forever forever in the new heavens and new earth. Now, we get tastes of it now because we have the Spirit. We have things like this where we gather with God's people to worship Him. We get tastes of heaven, touch of heaven, the song we sang earlier, but, but we don't get the full promised land experience now. Our life feels more like wilderness. And it's in the wilderness, in the waiting, in the wandering, where God meets you and shapes you into the kind of person you can be.